Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. So I am going to let you take it away. I think we'd all love to hear more about IndieFit and uh, hear about what you guys are working on. Sure. Happy to. So I'm Cheryl, founder and CEO of IndieFit. We're a business management platform for fitness instructors. And a little bit of the origin story behind the business is that I myself have been a huge group fitness enthusiast for as long as I can remember. So I'm somebody who could be caught studio bopping around Chicago five plus days a week historically. And through that, I became very loyal to my favorite fitness instructors. So many of them I even consider to be friends. And it was kind of through those friendships that I first learned one of the not so great parts about the fitness industry is that historically fitness instructors only take home about $26 a class, which is just 13% of what a class actually generates. So big opportunity to improve on that, obviously. And I got a big assist because of COVID last year. So I found myself in an interesting position last April. I myself was actually laid off, but the timing coincided with when all of my favorite studios and gyms were also closing. So I sort of followed all of my favorite fitness instructors as they started taking matters into their own hands, teaching classes on Zoom in local parks, you name it. And the first thing that kind of alerted me to the opportunity here is as I was participating in these new sort of alternative independent classes, I was frequently paying with Venmo. And it just got my wheels turning. Like this can't be very pleasant for the instructor in terms of managing a business this way. It certainly isn't very pleasant as a client to book a class that way. And ultimately from there, IndieFit was born. So effectively, we're a platform that makes it really easy for fitness instructors to manage booking and payment, automate all of the annoying things they don't want to do, like send a Zoom link, a calendar invite, or a refund, and also equipping them with some marketing tools that help them to grow their business. You guys are really a vertical SaaS platform, specifically specifically for entrepreneurial fitness instructors, effectively, right? Exactly right. And that's a really important nuance because I often have to clarify, we are not a consumer marketplace. So IndieFit is not a consumer-facing brand. We're not actually going out and generating demand for the classes that take place on our platform on behalf of our instructors. We're really focused on making them the star of the show. So that means that they have 100% ownership of their clients, their brand is front and center, and really we're just building amazing tech tools for them and with them, frankly. It's very collaborative <laughs> that help them to you know, streamline and grow a business. Yeah, and so you mentioned payments and having used Venmo historically. I'm curious about some of the other pain points that your friends who were fitness instructors would commonly talk to you about. Did you sort of start with payments and booking and realize there were all these other kind of solutions you could bring to them? Or did you have a whole, more holistic approach from the very beginning? How did the product develop from sort of the earliest stages? Yeah, you know, the booking and payment pain point was a really interesting one because it sounds so wildly simple. It almost feels, you know, that in and of itself can't be a complete product, right? But when you peel back the layers on this, what you realize is a typical fitness instructor sells so many different things. So a typical fitness instructor might offer live group classes. Some of those might be virtual, some might be in person, some might be private. They might wanna sell class packs, subscription memberships, 
video on demand, PDFs, the list really just keeps going. So what we realized was booking and payment actually was a really important component of the product. And it was really the all-in-one nature of equipping them to sell anything all from one place. But beyond that, it doesn't stop there. So there's definitely a lot of, you know, annoying admin tasks that come with running a business. And unsurprisingly, fitness instructors are passionate about teaching fitness, not sitting in front of a computer. So we're able to add a lot of value by taking things off their plate as simple as sending calendar invites to their clients, circulating Zoom links, managing messaging and refunds, and also giving them productivity tools like say broadcast texting, which allows them to send one text message to everybody who's booked for a class instead of clunky one-on-one communication. Um, But of course, the bucket of our product features that I get the most excited about are really on the marketing side because that's where we're really able to put dollars and cents in our partners' pockets. And ultimately, the thing that we want to do above all else is help them grow and thrive, of course. And I'm curious, coming out of, I'm sure COVID was such a tailwind and like, a great environment to attack this problem. There was probably so many fitness instructors looking to branch out on their own or looking to develop a bigger audience from the at home or virtual perspective. What are kind of your thoughts as we move through 2021 and, you know, our fitness instructors, is this platform, is it going to be for just the virtual fitness instructors or is it also going to be for the people who want to get back into the studios? Is it going to sort of cover both, both components of the market? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And and I have to say, I love that you mentioned the tailwinds because that was really a very interesting component of getting started. Not every business has such a compelling why now behind it the way that ours does. And so it was very funny because I went from, you know, laid off, taking a breather in life, going on a lot of like long bike rides and seeing friends to we're already behind, right? Like there was this manic pressure to go fast from day one and go fast we did. We actually built with a lot of no code, low code tools. And so the the crazy velocity stat from the beginning of our journey is we went from idea to launch beta in four weeks, which was a very neck breaking pace. <laughs> Happy to chat more about that. But in terms of your question around, you know, how things look a little different going forward, it's been a very interesting journey of learning and talking to our partners about this because I will admit that I initially think I saw the world a little bit more black and white than it actually is. And so I think we had this perception that either instructors teach in studios or they teach independently. Those must be binary options. And what we're realizing is, in fact, the world is very gray. And I I think it's not only gray on the instructor side of things, it's also changing a lot on the client side. So I think the days where people pick one studio or gym membership, pay that business a bunch of money, and then like exclusively go there are behind us, right? So we're definitely seeing an omni-channel fitness consumer who might build a routine that revolves around a Peloton, but also a relationship with their favorite instructor when they're craving that more community-driven social experience. And so what we're seeing is that so many of our partners are saying like, yeah, I'll go back to the studio, right? Like I had a great relationship with my studio. They give me good exposure. That's where I find a lot of my clients. But what we're finding is that the delta in earning potential that they were able to capture by teaching independently during this crazy time in our world 
was so significantly more than they were making in a studio that they're certainly not walking away from that. And, and they had a whole year to build established client bases and communities around their independent offerings. And so that's created some really interesting optionality in our product roadmap, because we're actually even encompassing some features into our platform now that are in service of studio instructors. So for example, we'll allow them to list classes that they're teaching in a studio in the same schedule where all of their independent IndieFit classes are listed and actually drive traffic to an external website if the booking takes place on a studio. So it's kind of got an all-in-one component for these fitness instructors. So everything can take place or at least originate in your ecosystem. Is that the idea? Exactly right. I mean, we're really trying to be the operating system for them. And all-in-one is the perfect word to use because there's definitely a lot of hodgepodge solutions in the market. But by being so laser focused on one very specific customer, fitness instructors, we're able to offer a lot of value just by being their one-stop shop. There's, and I wonder if this was going through your mind a year ago or at any point when you were sort of at the beginning of this journey, I've seen a ton of vertical SaaS platforms targeted niche professions. So I've seen it across the wellness spectrum. I think there's just so many areas of health and wellness that are antiquated and stuck in the paper analog days. And I COVID just brought about this kind of reawakening of, of people striking out on their own. And that meant they had to build their own sort of tech stack and build their own, you know, client lead generation, all those types of solutions. So I'm curious, while in, during this past year, have you sort of realized that you guys are a part of that new wave of vertical specific, you know, startups targeting these niches with SaaS products? Yeah, we absolutely are. And I think I came into IndieFit, as I mentioned, with a very deep passion for fitness and a really deep empathy for our single customer, which is a fitness instructor. But I think what I've found along this journey is actually a much broader passion for the creator economy at large. I mean, I think I, I've always been somebody who surrounds myself with very creative people. I have a lot of friends who are artists, musicians, et cetera. And, you know, I think I, I wouldn't have necessarily at the beginning of this journey put fitness in that bucket, but I think that we do very cleanly fit into this theme and this thesis of the creator economy and the unbundling of traditional employment. And frankly, it's a super rewarding space to build in because, you know, I, I often get asked, is IndieFit B2B or B2C? I usually say we're B2C, but it's not the C you're thinking. We're not business to consumer. We're what I call business to creator. And it's so rewarding because we're able to build tools in service of an individual, right? And the impact of these tools is sometimes life-changing. We're talking about greater autonomy, more time to spend with your family, superior earning potential, creative agency, right? And the ability to express yourself and build your brand. So it's such a fun space. I think I, you know, now intend to kind of play in this world for as long as I can and, and probably shape the rest of my career around this because it's a lot of fun. That's so awesome. And I think too, people will creator economy and passion economy, I guess, sometimes get intertwined. But it, to me, this is an area of the passion economy, you know, word almost makes sense because this is an area where people almost like cooking the same thing. These people like people are just passionate about fitness. They're passionate about cooking. And it just feels like there's been this huge surge of tools dedicated towards 
these type of entrepreneurs. And it's something I've talked about on a number of different podcast episodes, how it feels like in the next coming years, everybody is going to almost have a side hustle that wants one because it's so easy to kind of start your own side hustle just with all of these sort of tools that are available today. But um, bringing it back a little bit to the kind of history of the fitness industry, I am curious why 13% historically is that what fitness instructors have earned? It seems so low. And I think people will be surprised by that number. Yeah, it's a very surprising number. And I'm, I'm glad you're asking because I think an important thing I like to clarify on this is like studio owners are not the devil, right? Like we're not trying to say that every person who has ever run a studio or gym was, you know, out, out for evil and, and sort of like price gouging their talent. That's not the case, right? It's sort of the nature of the model. So when you think about what it looked like to run a brick and mortar studio, you basically have these really, really narrow times of day where all of your demand occurs. And so everybody wants to take a fitness class right before they go to work in the morning, right after they're coming home, and pretty much nothing in between. And so it's a little bit of a, a similar, like restaurants see this problem as well. Like, what do you do when your day part mix is so skewed and you don't have an even flow of business coming in all day? And so I really think that this is just um, the nature of what fitness economics look like when fitness only occurred in a brick and mortar use case. They had to spread high fixed costs, salaries for their employees, et cetera, et cetera, across the amount of revenue that they earned all day. And what that translated into was the unit economics on a single class basis for instructors being very unfavorable. So a big character in the story here is Zoom, frankly. Like it's the amount of fitness that has gone virtual and the fact that consumer behavior has now been changed completely. And we're more accepting of a virtual fitness experience, fitness in our own homes, in a park, right? You name it. And you know, I, I think it was just the nature of the beast and what the economics look like for a brick and mortar business. Reminds me too of Peloton in the last year, maybe not exactly analogous to to the types of fitness instructors you're going after, but I do think it speaks to this larger trend of, you know, we we everyone started to have to do fitness virtually, and yet there became this almost crazy uptake in in the community surrounding these fitness products and these specific instructors too on the other side of the screen. I know people who will just like make sure they're always taking the same Peloton class from the same instructor because they're still able to reach out and make those connections. And I think it's probably not something I don't know if I would have predicted a year ago once everything got shut down that this sort of community would be even more galvanized. And this trend, like you said, this consumer trend, it really does feel like it's embedded at this point. And it's one of the ones that is going to stick around post COVID, at least that's what a ton of venture capitalists are kind of betting on in the first place. Yeah, the the Peloton phenomenon is fascinating. And like I said, I think, you know, I being in this like power user, heavy group fitness use case, you know, it's more of a religion than a routine for me. I experienced that super deep loyalty to instructors a long time ago. So I, I feel like this is something I've always inherently understood. But what's been really interesting about the Peloton phenomenon is they have actually succeeded in bringing that to the masses. And it comes back to this idea of like fitness used to occur exclusively in a local capacity, right? Like it was a brick and mortar business in your city and not just in your city, but frankly, probably within, you know, a one to two mile range. If you, if you're in a city like Chicago, you're not traveling across the city for a boot camp. And so those relationships could really only exist on a local level. When you suddenly have this Peloton platform phenomenon happening, 
those one to many relationships are now scaled to like millions of clients who follow you and love you for some of these celebrity instructors. But I think the overreaching theme in all of this is like people become loyal to people. And so when we think about how our partners win the game against the giants like Peloton, Big Box Fitness, their superpower is being themselves. It's really just tapping into the fact that people don't just seek out a great workout in fitness. They seek out personal relationships with their instructor, community, relationships with the people they're taking class with, and they want to feel a part of something. And nobody can be better at that than a person, than an independent instructor. Yeah, there's a there's an awesome piece that I've referenced in past episodes by Packy McCormick at Not Boring. It's uh, it's called Power to the Person, but it talks a lot about that, about in the last year, we've really seen throughout the creator economy, people become evangelists for particular professionals in a given field. So I, I think that's so cool how you guys are playing into that. I do want to ask a bit more about the product today and kind of the roadmap. Sure. So what is the current status of the product today? You mentioned I think you guys are in a private beta right now. Just would love to hear about where the product is and where you think it's headed in the next six to 12 months. Yeah. So circling back on that point that we felt a tremendous amount of urgency to move quickly. I have learned so much along this journey of building the company about no code and low code tools. And frankly, it is a crazy time to build a company because some of these barriers to entry, needing a software developer, a technical co-founder that used to really gridlock non-technical founders are not as much of a problem anymore. It's actually quite amazing what you can accomplish in a very off the shelf and an integration driven way where you just glue multiple tools together. So we definitely had scrappy beginnings and there was a little bit of that pay no attention to the man behind the curtain type phenomenon where we tested several things by first doing it manually and creating the illusion that automation was happening for our partners. So for that reason, we had to be a little bit responsible about how large of a beta we bit off over the last summer and fall. And so we've been in a private beta with about 70 fitness instructors, many of whom are in Chicago, but several are not. So as a software platform, we do exist pretty much agnostic of geography. And really the role of that beta, frankly, was learning. You know, it was just starting the conversation. Like I said earlier, we believe in building not only for instructors, but with instructors. And so every single thing we do, whether it's a design change, a feature addition, prioritizing our roadmap, we run it past them. And because our beta was small and intimate, on a personal level, it's been really fun to just truly get to know some of our early partners. I'm on a text message, phone call basis with most of them. It's been a lot of fun. But of course, that super intimate part of the journey can't last forever. So now we are officially coming out of our beta at the end of May. And we have raised a little bit of outside capital now and made a key technical hire. We've brought on a CTO that's allowing us to, of course, bring all that product development in-house and move at a much faster velocity with a much more sophisticated and stable product. So we are excited over the next couple of weeks here to debut that new product and and turn the page into our next chapter. I'm so curious about the comments you made around 
the no no code, low code aspect of building a business basically from the ground up. Because I think it's, again, plays into this phenomenon today of it's never been easier. There's never been lower barriers to entry to starting uh, a software business. I, so I'm just curious for my own kind of edification, like <laughs> what tools did you use at the earliest stages? And I would imagine you guys have some APIs that are integrated into your platform. So I'm just curious about sort of the stack and how you guys built this thing from the ground up. And I, I also love how it seems like you did kind of employ that lean startup te- lean startup methodology where you're working so closely with who your end customer is and you're developing it with them and for them primarily in mind. Yeah, I mean, the no-code, low-code thing was so advantageous in a variety of ways because it gave us speed, it cost next to nothing. And it's hard to see when you're at the very beginning of your founder journey, why that's important, because you really get enamored with your idea, right? You get enamored with your hypothesis and you really feel like, I know what we're building and I want it to be great. And and I, as a very like type A perfectionist, admittedly, did struggle with realizing like you have to accept an MVP. And there's a Reid Hoffman quote I really like, which is if the first version of your platform doesn't embarrass you, you launched it too late. I struggled with that, right? Like launching a version of our product that embarrassed me, gave me hives. But looking back, I am so glad we did it because things did change, right? As much as you don't think that's going to be the case at the beginning of your founder journey, nearly 100% of the time it is. So from a tooling standpoint, we actually got our start on a platform called ShareTribe. And that was very interesting because they are designed for standing up two-sided marketplaces. And so we were trying to hack the use case a little bit by doing all of these software-driven things that we talked about. So they definitely allowed us to get started very quickly in a scrappy way, but we did outgrow that platform very quickly. And the no-code platform that we've relied on since then is actually a Chicago-based startup called Perry, which is spelled P-A-I-R-I, and their URL is perry.app. And we met them at a very interesting point in both of our journeys where we were freaking out a little bit because we were like, we outgrew ShareTribe in a month. What are we going to do, right? It felt like things were very broken. And they went through Techstars last summer and were basically fresh out of Techstars looking for their first customers and their first product validation. And their thesis was really building a no-code platform designed for companies like ours that have this big booking component, often are focused on these passion or creator economy type of use cases. And so ultimately, we just like fell in love with them as a team and could tell that they would be trustworthy partners. And it was a little bit of a strategic partnership in the sense that we took a bet on them you know, helped them prove out their roadmap and and let them learn from our use case. But in return, we actually got a lot of custom development and, and help behind the scenes from them. So that's where we've been this far in the journey. But frankly, the, the landscape of no-code tools is vast at this point. There's Bubble that people talk about a lot. There's one called Shoe. And I went in knowing basically nothing about any of this, but there's quite a um, vast catalog of info on the internet now in Reddit, Slack groups, you name it. And I'm always happy to chat with other founders about this stuff because at this point we've we've learned a lot by doing. <laughs> I love that two shy town startups just teaming up and helping each other out. That's great. I'm curious about the revenue model for you guys and just the tiers of pricing that you have. Yeah, great question. So we have a couple of different revenue streams. The first is your pretty traditional freemium SaaS subscription model. So we really take a life cycle driven approach to thinking about how we tier that. 
And so there is a totally free version of the IndieFit platform with no fixed monthly cost. And it's really designed for the type of instructor who might be side hustling, just trying out an independent offering for the first time. Maybe they have a full-time job in a studio and they're just looking to stand up a couple of quick special events or master classes. And so really on the light version of the platform, you can utilize most of the platform. But what we do from there is actually walk up to some premium tiers that are specifically designed for instructors who are in later stages of their life cycle. So the first is what we call IndieFit Pro for $29 a month. That unlocks features like class packs, subscription memberships, and video on demand. And that's where we are today, but we're planning to also debut some additional tiers in the future that are really focused on customization. And so you'll be able to upgrade to a higher tier that allows you to change the look and feel, the font, your logo, the actual design of the confirmation emails that send when clients book your class and so on. And so that SaaS revenue model is the first stream. We do also take a percentage-based take rate on bookings on the platform of 5%. And really the thesis behind that is, you know, it's intentionally low. Like we're very mission-driven and we want the majority of what instructors earn going back into their pocket. But we like the idea that our interests are aligned in the sense that a portion of our revenue is percentage-based because that creates a real revenue-driven incentive for us to actually build product features that have a dollars and cents growth impact on their business. And it also sounds like it's still, end of the day, a much better deal than uh, fitness instructors are used to in the past. But I, So just hopping around a little bit, not to quick fire this, but would love to hear about the competitive landscape as you guys see it. Are there horizontal tools that fitness instructors are currently trying to use today that maybe aren't focused specifically on them? Just kind of how you see the competitive landscape uh, in 2021. Sure. It's been an interesting journey with regard to competition because admittedly, again, there was sort of a black swan event that happened all at once that really drove how obvious this opportunity was last spring. And so I sort of define the competitive set two different ways. The first is what we observed in the market last spring. And the second is the evolving landscape that we see today. So historically, what we really found was there were two alternatives in the market. The first was using what I often call a one-size-fits-all booking tool. So this is very commonly using the built-in booking tools that like Squarespace or Wix will provide you or just doing like the scrappy Venmo thing. And the the downsides of those are probably obvious. Ultimately, they're built for booking anything, not for fitness specifically. So there's just a lot of holes and gaps in the process. And on the other end of the spectrum, you basically had your enterprise booking tools that are designed for studios and gyms. And most notably, that is MindBody. So by a significant margin, they are the leader in the studio space. But very interestingly, they're not very popular. And, and when it comes to being an independent fitness instructor and looking at their tools, basically, they're just like far more complicated than anything that you need and also far more expensive. Like we're talking 150 a month, getting locked into 12-month contracts. And so there just really wasn't a great solution in the market. So that was the white space that we saw and we got excited about. But it's not super surprising that there are other Cheryls out there, right, who love fitness and wanted to help instructors in the same way that we did. And so we definitely have a growing competitive set, but everybody is at our stage. And my take on that is, you know, we, of course, monitor the market. We think carefully about how to differentiate and we have some creative ideas around that. But I also do believe that, like, it's execution, you know, like it's, it's listening to your customers and being obsessed with them 
not obsessed with your competitors. And so rather than paying too much attention to what everybody else is doing and being tempted to let that bias us or our roadmap, we really try to keep our heads down, execute quickly, listen to our customers and just be scientists in the sense that every day is an experiment to test and learn something and just rinse and repeat. You mentioned listening to your customers. I guess in my head, the uh, fitness instructor market, it, it seems like it almost might be a little fragmented, meaning it might be hard to go out and find all of these specific entrepreneurs and, and bring them onto your platform. But then again, so much of this is online. So much of this is in the virtual world. So it's definitely not as hard as it probably was a year ago, two years ago. So curious just about your customer acquisition strategy, how you guys are planning to bring on more and more fitness instructors in the coming years? Sure, great question. So I would say the market is is fragmented in a couple of senses. The first, it's fragmented with regard to there are a whole lot of different segments and personas within the fitness instructor community. And so many things have a bearing on that, how far into their career they are, whether they're fully independent or teaching in a studio, what they teach. So we've learned that yoga instructors are very different people, right? Than like high intensity boot camp instructors. So I would say that over the course of the last year that we've been live in this private beta, one of the most important things that we've learned is really just how to segment the market. So one of the things that we've learned that I would say is a big banner takeaway is we're very focused on getting in front of people who are focused on fitness in a full-time capacity. And that doesn't mean they have to be independent fully. That just means fitness is the career, right? There is that drive to build a big fitness business, scale their brand. These tend to be very ambitious entrepreneurial go-getters. And we've learned that, you know, there, there's definitely a market to be built around part-time fitness instructors and side hustle instructors as well, but it's not the best starting point for us. So we've learned a lot about who we're going after and in terms of how we do it, really the the key here is social media. I mean, instructors live on social. And so, you know, there, there takes some creativity, right? In terms of like when you slide into DMs, what is exactly the right thing to say so that it doesn't just feel like more noise? And so we're always working on cracking the nut around how we can be more community and content driven. And so rather than treating this like a hard sale, which it absolutely cannot be, back to that point of, of being B2C, business to creator, we know that our customer doesn't respond to salesy, annoying messages. And so we're very focused on all of the things that we can do that basically build value and community on top of our technology. And that often includes webinar events, bringing in great guest speakers, bite-sized tips on social media, blog posts. And so we really try to lure partners in with value first and foremost. And we believe that when you do that and you build community and you create friends, you know, the rest sorts itself out versus treating this like too much of a direct sale. I, I have to ask if you could have one celebrity spokesperson for Indifit, who would it be? Who would you have sort of be the face of the brand? I don't know if there's too many like celebrity, like national fitness instructors out there. Like Chris Hemsworth has a fitness app, which I downloaded for five minutes because I think he's the man and I didn't stick with it. So, I mean, he'd be my choice, but curious if you guys have <laughs> anyone who'd be your go-to celebrity spokesperson. Yeah. You know, I think Kayla Itzinas is probably my answer because she is like, she is the OG. Like she built an independent empire in fitness way before it was cool. And I just think there's something to be said for that. I mean, she really embodies like 
the the entrepreneurial hustler ambitious person who sort of like forged the way for us to even be sitting and talking about celebrity instructors yeah she she would be a dream connection in any capacity whether it was spokesperson investor advisor that's my plug. I'll, I'll throw that intention out into the universe. <laughs> we at Chicago Capital, we'll see what we can do. You know, we'll pull some <laughs> strings. We'll see if we can get into contact. I mean, we're we're a local Chicago podcast, but who knows? Maybe we'll have some luck. We'll try. Yeah, I have I have this on the record now, so that means I yeah. can hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, as we're wrapping up, would love to hear about your guys' fundraising plans in the next next six months to year. I know you mentioned you raised a little bit of outside capital, but curious about your fundraising roadmap. Yeah, great question. So we did a small friends and family round last fall, which we closed in October. And we are now at just about the midpoint of our pre-seed round. So we're planning to raise 700K in total for our pre-seed round. And we've learned, and this is a common outcome in the Midwest, the right focus for us right now is angel investors more so than institutional VCs. And so the capital that we've raised to date, which is now just north of 400K in total, has come entirely from angels. And so for that reason, we're taking a lot of small checks. <laughs> so what we did with our pre-seed round is we actually broke it into two tranches. So at this point, we have completely closed the first tranche, first half of that raise, but we still have the second bit to go. So over the next couple of weeks, as we really focus on the launch of our homegrown true V1 product. I'm stepping back a little bit because I know as any founder can relate to fundraising is a full-time job and so is running your company. So sometimes you just have to plan from a personal productivity perspective when you can be really focused on both in terms of trying to dilute your focus too much. So I am taking a little bit of a hiatus for the next couple of weeks, but we're going to be right back at it in the summer. That's awesome. That's awesome. We'll be sure to keep keep an eye on you guys and have you on the show again once you're uh, fully enveloped in the fundraising fund process over the summer. I did want to just finish on a little bit about Chicago. Uh, you know, I know you're involved with 1871, but I would just love to hear kind of your perspective on what it's like to be an entrepreneur here in Chicago. And I know the most of your time spent here as a founder has been virtually or at least, you know, in the in the Zoom world. But would love to hear your thoughts on kind of the Chicago startup ecosystem. Yeah, happy to share. And it's it's very funny that you bring 1871 up and, and this virtual component. I actually told Betsy this the other day. It made her chuckle. But I've been an 1871 member since last May, and I have never set foot in Merchandise Mart. <laughs> so kudos to them, because that's the only experience that I've had with 1871. But I would still say that it's been an incredibly valuable one. I think I'm definitely what you might call like a power user of the 1871 community. We kind of do it all. We've been involved in Pyros since last May. I've done a couple of like lightning talks and, and some speaking within that community as well. And then ultimately, I think, you know, as with any incubator community opportunity, you get out of it what you put in. And so I think that we've tried to be, you know, despite the fact that it's easy to feel busy and the need to put your head down, we have tried to be very proactive about forging founder friendships, even when that happens remotely. And one of the interesting um, outputs of that focus for me has been, I actually have a small group of founders that I meet with every Friday morning in what we're calling a founder circle. And it's not an official 1871 sanctioned event or anything. But it was kind of an idea that Rachel at 1871 and I came up with 
together of like, there doesn't always have to be somebody in the room moderating. Sometimes there's a lot of magic that happens when you just match make founders who are either building similar businesses or they're at similar stages in their journey, similarly fundraising, you name it. And so that's what we've kind of created on Fridays. And it's a total founders only environment, but it, it's, it's so energizing. Like it is my morning coffee on Fridays. I feel like I wake up excited to see my founder pals and it gets me through the day. So definitely important to build your tribe when you're going through this journey. <laughs> I think that's so spot on too, because just the people I know at Booth who are in the same position, founders of a you know startup early stage company, they talk so much about the serendipity that is involved with any early stage company and how a lot of them meet their co-founders or their CTOs at these just random out of the blue events. And it's something that I think has been lacking a little bit in the last year. And I think a lot of people are excited for at least that component to come back. And I know everybody's sort of at Booth and it sounds like everybody at 1871 is really excited for that as well. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on Chicago Capital. This was amazing. If people want to follow you and, and find you guys online, uh, where can they go? Yeah, so IndieFit is I-N-D-I-F-I-T dot C-O. So definitely feel free to check out our website, share with any fitness instructors who might benefit from our tools. And then I personally do a little bit of writing from time to time, although I've been less than diligent this year because I'm so busy. But my personal website is Cheryl-Kemp.com. So feel free to pop in there for contact information, social links, and a few uh, blog posts that I've dappled in in the past. Awesome. Cheryl, thank you so much. Can't wait to do this again. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.